Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the 2019 Tanner Lecture at Oxford University. Uh, the Tanner Lectures, which are held each year at nine of the world's greatest universities, including Oxford and Cambridge, celebrate outstanding scholarship in the field of human values. Selection as a Tanner Lecture is a signal honour and one richly deserved by our speaker this afternoon. The Honourable Strode Talbot is no stranger to Oxford, uh, or indeed this hall, uh, because he studied here as a Rhodes Scholar at Magdalen College, uh, and then had a long and distinguished career as a journalist uh, for Time magazine, before moving at the invitation, I understand, of uh, an Oxford buddy, Bill Clinton, <coughs> to the US State Department. First as Ambassador at Large and Special Advisor to the Secretary of State uh, for the newly independent states of the former Soviet Union, and then for seven years as the US Deputy Secretary of State. He followed that by becoming the sixth president of the influential Brookings Institution, uh, post which he held for 15 years, during which he proved himself to be both an astute foreign policy analyst uh, and commentator on international relations and a prolific writer, authoring a large number of books. We're very much looking forward to your lecture this evening, Stro. Uh, the title of the 2019 Tanner Lecture is A President for Dark Times, The Age of Reason Meets the Age of Trump. Please welcome us. Thank you very, very much, Dick. Um, <laughs> this is my wife. She's going to hydrate me. I was going to ask if I could do that. But... First to you, Nick. This is, of course, a great honor. It's an opportunity. And also, you have brought Barbara and me to a part of the world that we both love. In my own case, which goes back a long time, I have uh, a dear, dear affection for this town, this university, this and this nation. And I have only one a regret about this occasion. And that is, and you could probably already know what I'm going to say, I wish I could be more optimistic about the mood and the trends of our time. What a contrast to my last opportunity to speak at Oxford. That was at All Souls 20 years ago. 
the last year of the 20th century. And I remember it very well because there was a sense in the air that the human endeavor was about to cross the threshold of a new millennium with a spring in its step. To wit, globalization was a relatively new word with an upbeat ring. The EU was prospering and expanding. And so was NATO. Our alliance was gearing up to end 10 years of carnage in the Balkans. Russian diplomats helped in that cause. Russian military units were part of an international peacekeeping force. A Russian leader was determined to bring his country in from the cold. And then there was the aforementioned President of the United States, an Oxonian from Arkansas. It's right over there. He had a strong hand in those attainments that seemed to bode well for the 21st century. That was then, this is now. The zeitgeist has darkened. Globalization is now a target of protest and blame. The EU is floundering. Balkan ghosts are stirring. So are Russia's demons. Now, regressions of this kind are often common in history. Actually, they seem to be almost inevitable. The waves of progress often bring undertoes. Many Americans are feeling a tug on our own country, that we, we, we feel that we are being pulled downward and backward. Barbara and I are living with that anxiety every day, especially for our grandchildren. But before I turn to America's woes and follies, a word of sympathy and support to all the Britons in this hall. You too are living through a time of troubles. In fact, our troubles are similar. As nations, we are having difficulty living up to our names, literally. The United Kingdom and the United States are deeply disunited. We're both in the midst of reminders that democracy is fragile. 
That said, of course, our systems are not entirely identical. The center of your democracy rests in the mother of parliaments. Our system is presidential. That word emphasizes the responsibility and the power vested in one office and in one individual. But that's only one reason to concentrate on another American, Donald Trump. And, uh, and it's also not just because he has the title of chief executive. The driving reason for me putting this issue before you is not his title, but it's the way that he has defiled it. In our, in our, in our entire history, we have never had a president of his nature. He has broken the mold of the US presidency. I'm not going to dwell on his policies per se, since we all know what they are. We're getting deluged every day, I often feel every hour in the middle of the night, informing us about his version of statesmanship. Instead, my, uh, my stress is on the phenomenon of this man, the Trump phenomenon. And that's a, a phrase in our, uh, um, certainly in academe, and also in the media. The f uh, rather than talking to you and then maybe listening from your, your vantage point about policies, I would rather take the issue and put it in the frame of ethics and philosophy or putting it another way, putting it into the theme of the Tanner Lectures, that is, the importance of human values. My purpose is to compare the ethos of the American founders on the one hand, and on the other, Mr. Trump's motives and his behavior as a public servant and as a human being. The disparity, I believe, clarifies how extreme and how dangerous this aberrational presidency is. Now, Great Britain figures profoundly in this story. The intellectual and political histories of the UK 
and the US and the US have overlapped for centuries. Britain was a major force, as you all know, in the European Enlightenment, which in turn was a major force in the birth of the United States. When the Enlightenment jumped the Atlantic, ideas from the old world inspired the new, and not just to create a new country, but a new way of governing it. Hence, the founding fathers, as we call them, of America were the children of the Enlightenment, especially the British Enlightenment. I will throw a few names at you that you know very, very well. I'll start with the firstborn of the founders, the Archdruid, as I think of him, Benjamin Franklin. As a boy in Boston, he read John Locke's essay of concerning human understanding. I can hardly get through the title. It's, it, it's, it's, a, neat, it's a very mean uh, feat for anybody to do. And he was something like eight years old. As a 19-year-old apprentice to a printer in London, Franklin wrote, wrote and self-published a Lockean treatise. And in his old, old age, he called Locke's essay the best book of logic in the world. Then, about a generation later, along came Thomas Jefferson. If any of you have visited his home in Monticello, you maybe saw three portraits side by side as you come into his house. He called them the trinity of the greatest men in human history. Francis Bacon, Isaac Newton, and of course Locke himself. Jefferson famously borrowed language from Locke when he was drafting the most powerful passage of the Declaration of Independence. It proclaimed a core principle of the American creed, the sovereignty of a human being. But that first principle also came with a corollary. Since all humans are equally endowed, they should be treated as such, with equal rights and consideration and compassion and charity and tolerance and happiness. Now that word back then connoted altruism. Therefore, it carried more ethical weight and scope than it does today. 
The founders believed that their prodigy's survival depended on the happiness of society itself. To attain and secure that goal, citizens must have authority over their own lives. And that meant that they must have ultimate authority over their political leaders. As Tom Paine might have said it, these truths were just common sense in the age of reason. The philosophical foundation of the United States was in place in 1776. It took another 13 years for the founders to establish a permanent government. With it, they created a presidency that upheld a strict tenant. The occupant, the, the occupant of that office would be, by the law of the land, a servant of the, of the people. When they put that goal into practice, the outcome was a glorious, great boon for our nation during its early vital years. The first six presidents' terms stretched over 40 years. And we all know who they are. George Washington, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, James Monroe, and John Quincy Adams. He gets in there too. They had their own they had their, they had their uh, rivalries and disputes, but they also had the common experience of living in the Enlightenment, absorbing its values, and inventing America. The six used their presidencies to refine norms and strictures for themselves as presidents, but also for their successors. In other words, they did their very best to affix enlightenment values to the office itself. Of all those do's and don'ts, George Washington put a premium on a virtuous, disciplined, personal behavior. Without that, he believed, no other attributes would qualify for an, a, a, a president of the United States. His definition of a good character included a healthy degree of modesty. Where is that going to go? <laughs> he helped, uh, it, modesty he felt helped careful deliberation 
because it's uh, much easier and much more wise to make difficult decisions if you don't uh, if you don't bring your wisdom completely from inside of you. You need it from other people. Modesty also meant exercising self-criticism, which, by the way, is an enlightenment value all itself. Washington had the innate wisdom to know what he didn't know, thereby making the most of expert advice. The other five presidents followed suit. They all were attentive listeners, but they were also voracious readers. They valued the written word, especially the Enlightenment canon of logic, science, and history. Once again, Washington set the the standard. He had practically no formal education. Yet, throughout his extraordinary life, he was always, always doing his homework. In a library in New York, where Barbara and I live much of the time, she does her writing in a library that that, uh, George Washington frequented. It's called the New York Library Society. Uh, And I was allowed, thanks to her clout, to go into the stacks. And I found out uh, that George Washington, in the first year of his presidency of the United States in New York, where the provisional seat of government was, he took out a dense tome on international law by a protege of Grotius. Don't ask me about that. And a massive collection of debates in the House of Commons. And that sort of blew my mind because he was not even going to have to go to question time in the US Congress. But he wanted to see how uh, the parent of his country did it uh, for so long. So, 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 so once again, that was then, and this is now. In every category where the founders aspired to the enlightenment of values, President Trump has either ignored or scorned them. While the, while the founders strived to promote societal happiness. Trump wants exclusively his own, often to the distress of others, I might say. He has used his office 
exclusively to further his personal and political interests. Despite his campaign slogan, and we all know what it is, he has no vision for a great America. Instead, his vision is one of his own greatness. The essence of Trump and his character and his ambition is all about him. This characteristic is often called solipsism. And solipsism has as a a product constant lying. Instead of recognizing and dealing with the facts of life, he makes up fake ones that suit his alternative reality. Just this week, the Washington Post has a ongoing sort of uh, in-house think tank that does nothing but pick up on what Trump says or tweets or whatever. And uh, it turns out that this week, the number of false and misleading claims since his inauguration has passed the 10,000 mark. While he traffics in falsehoods, he disdains knowledge and expertise in general, and science in particular. The most egregious example is his status as the planet's number one climate change denier. He claims to be an intuitive genius. Over and over he says this. He says that his gut, his golden gut, serves him better than any egghead. He wants to be the best, the most famous, the most successful in whatever he strives for. And that brings up a particularly unusual, if not unprecedented, um, it's it's not even a, a quirk, it's something that he is fierce about. And that is anybody who took the, the who got the, into the presidency of the United States is a competitor, and he has to beat them. In the first year of his presidency, he concentrated on belittling former presidents who happened to still be alive, in case they took a swipe at him which they didn't, by the way. Then, in the second year, he widened the field of competition. He boasted to Bob Woodward the following, quotes, nobody has ever done a better job than I am doing 
as president. I always have a tr little bit of tr trouble with uh, his uh, grammar, but never mind. You get it. When, a, when a, a past president's name came up, he was likely to knock it down. The weirdest incident of this sort was a few months ago when Trump was giving a press conference to defend the, his newest Supreme Court nominee. Suddenly, in the course of the conference, out of the boot, the 40th, 40th President of the United States took a gratuitous swipe at the first. George Washington, and again, I'm going to try to be, to uh, even have his words come out of uh, my wow, my wow, mouth. George Washington says, maybe, sorry, Trump says, Washington may have had a bad past. Who knows? He may have had some accusations made. Didn't he have a couple of things in his past? There was a stunned silence among the reporters. They had no idea what Trump was referring to, and neither did he. <laughs> Thank you, Barbara. But here, I have to strike a chord in a minor key about the founders themselves and even the Enlightenment. In fact, there was something bad in Washington's past. I see a couple of heads nodding. He was a slave owner. So were the other three Virginian presidents, Jefferson, Madison, and Monroe. Slaves from the Gold Coast of Africa came to Jamestown very shortly after the English settlers. Back in London, Newton and Locke made some money in the stock exchange investing in the slave trade. On this painful subject, the English Enlightenment sputtered. But in America, slavery has left an indelible stain on the nation's soul. As for the Trump catastrophe, that is his election, racism in America has been a double curse. First, it, it has empowered his assent, and second, Trump him encourages the racists themselves. He also has taken his 
what can I say? His genius for hate-mongering and making it much more expansive. He has made it his style and weapon to, uh, to intimidate critics and opponents with threats of violence. I'm sure a number of you remember this, even though it was three years ago, it feels like three centuries. It started at, the, at his rallies while campaigning in 206, 2006. More than once in his rallies, and you remember before he came out on the stage, there would be uh, somebody uh, saying, let her, uh, lock her up, lock her up, lock her up. What Trump did, bettering his, group, his team, was to tell the followers out there in the, in the room or in the huge uh, uh, stadium, he, he, he insinuated that they might use their right to bear, to bear arms to assassinate Hillary Clinton. The, the crowd loved it. No sooner was Trump in the White House than he turned his calculus of wrath towards the mainstream media. He called them the enemy of the people. Surely, somebody in his entourage would have been brave enough to tell him at some point that he was echoing jo Joseph Sostala. But here we are, three years later, and he continues to do so. He has also repeatedly used the charge of treason against those who disagree with him. He, ra he railed at Democrats uh, in the Capitol building uh, as treasonous because, get this, they didn't applaud him during a State of the Union address. Now that is ludicrous, of course, but it is no laughing matter. Since the word defines a capital crime, it calls to my mind Algernon Sidney's beheading on the order of Charles II because what and it was because of what Sidney wrote. His last words on the scaffold were the following. We live in an age that makes truth pass for treason. That warning all those centuries ago has an eerie con contemporary ring in American politics today. 
So put all this together, and what you have is the most powerful leader in the world who wants more power, unshackled power, and personal power. But what he doesn't understand is this. The real power comes from the US presidency as the office where a leader of democracy is. A state governed by laws and not men. That brings me to the American Constitution. That document, like the Declaration of Independence, is a product of the Enlightenment in itself, in its spirit, and in its substance. A key purpose of the, of, the, of the Constitution was to prevent a tyrant from capturing the presidency itself. Hence, the separation of the powers of the branches of government. A prescription, by the way, advocated by political theorists two centuries before. The same is true with the Bill of Rights. Our freedoms of speech, press, assembly, and worship. They're right out of the writings of English and Scottish Enlightenment philosophers. Trump, with all of these constitutional precepts, has disparaged them or disobedient uh, for multiple times and in multiple ways. That's why many Americans, as you all know and are reading about, are reading themselves again about the Constitution and what it has to say about removing a president. But here's the rub. The process is fundamentally a political process, not a judicial one. The politics are complicated. The Democratic majority in the House might very well impeach Trump. But the Republican majority in the Senate is likely to acquit him. Or as Trump would certainly say, he's been exonerated from everything that he's ever done. If that were to happen, he could go into the next year, the next uh, presidential campaign in 2020 with the wind at his back and his opponents deflated. That's why Democrats may choose to let the electorate, the American people, decide the fate of, of Trump when we get to November 2020. And that is a long time 
and it is going to be a scary one. But I'm not going to stop there. With that prospect in mind, I do want to make one more point. Up to now, I have focused exclusively on one living American, and that is Donald Trump. But there are, of course, millions of Americans who gave him his victory in 2016. In the aftermath of that surprising outcome, politicians, pollsters, reporters, academics, think tankers have all been trying to explain why this happened. One of the principal factors certainly is a, wide, a, a, a widespread alienation among white working middle-class voters in the South and in the heartland. A potent visceral protest vote in these regions and demographics was stoked by their feeling of being left behind, ignored, worse, looked down upon, especially by the political and intellectual elites. Trump is counting on those disaffected voters to give him a second term. But he's going to have some real competition. Many of the numerous Democratic candidates, candidates, and I don't know how many they are today, but it's 22, 23, something, are already targeting parts of Trump's base. They might succeed with peeling away from him to them. But they're going to have to do it by understanding the grievances of the Trump voters and come up with ways to remediate them. Then there are us scholars and think tankers. We too have our own civic responsibilities and we try not to keep them partisan. We too are pondering the lesson of 2016. We realize that we were living and thinking and writing in various bubbles three years ago. I'm glad to say that there's a lot more being done and a lot uh, eyes open and getting out of the bubbles. That means not just how we think, but where we go. You probably have heard the phrase that the Trump uh, heartland 
is the flyover part of the country. You know, the two, the, the liberal west and the, the liberal east. What we're doing, and a lot of my co cohorts uh, in Washington are doing, are landing in the flyover parts of the country, in the, in the Midwest and the Farm Belt, and not just in college towns. Also, it's very important when they make these trips that they have to be careful to do much more listening and learning than talking and teaching. Uh, for the, for the peop, uh, from the people that they, uh, that they meet. So I'm going to, if, you, if there is time, we can talk a, a little bit more, but I'm going to close. But I think it's appropriate that I reach back to my reading for this lecture to what I think is my number one philosopher. Spinoza. He was way, way ahead of his time. He was on the side of democracy, not just republicanism, even though the, world, the word pluralism was not invented yet, Spinoza understood it and favored it. His ironclad postulate that all humans have one common nature basically was the, the foundation on pretty much everything else he had to say. And he uh, felt that if we have, us human beings, a common nature, he was very wary about elitism. And therefore, he had a warning for others of his profession. And it was this. They should resist the snobbish notion that the hoi polloi is ignorant. If, however, the philosophers that he could reach to, uh, and by the way, the piece that he wrote this on was published uh, after he was dead. If, philo if philosophers could, uh, did not take his advice and continued to bask in their cool reason and dismiss the passions of the people, resentment against the elites would fester, raising the specter of populism and demagogy. To avert that, Spinoza put the onus on the elites themselves. And he did so by making it uh, imperative that all sectors of society in their civic role need to be part of the great conversation 
that is part of the Enlightenment uh, itself. And what uh, he hoped would happen if the elites would stop being elitist and taking their, their questions before their answers to the people, there you would, you would have a, a government, a, a, a society, a polity where the citizens would have the, the liberties that we, we have, but also happiness. So with that, to all of us, good luck and good work in our own era, in our own nations, in our own world, and in our civic roles, and in the US anyway, I don't think it's necessary for us to be riding around in bumper stickers when we get to the election extolling Enlightenment values. Human values are just fine. <laughs>